Welcome to Missionary Roundtable with your host, Kale Horvath. Welcome, everybody, to Missionary Roundtable, a brand new podcast. I'm your host, Kale Horvath. I'm a pastor and a missionary to the country of Hungary. My family is actually in the process of finishing fundraising and moving to Hungary this year, which has been interesting uh, with this worldwide pandemic that has struck in 2020. Uh, nevertheless, we're pushing forward and hope to move to Budapest, Hungary soon, uh, which is where we've been ministering to orphans and youth through evangelical summer camps for years, actually, uh, since 2014, alongside Wildwood Baptist Church in Lambertville, Michigan. In the meantime, uh, I've been working on this little project for you all. Uh, this is a spin-off podcast, is what we'll call it, of the Podcast Theology Roundtable. You may or may not know that I helped uh, produce and create that podcast, and chances are, if you're listening to this one, that you uh, found this podcast because you already listened to Theology Roundtable. But if you stumbled across this podcast just because you're interested in missions or missionaries, uh, make sure that you go on over and subscribe and follow and listen to Theology Roundtable. That podcast is hosted by my pastor, Jeff Bartell, along with Pastor Troy Stogsdill and Pastor Brett Bartlett. And those three guys have years and years of experience as being pastors and studying theology and studying the Bible, and they come at theology from a very practical standpoint. And so the point of Theology Roundtable was that rather than just being a theology class, it would be a laid-back, casual, candid discussion about important theological points. And so I think that has been uh, the success of that podcast and hopefully what— people like about it and listening to it. And so what we're going to do is borrow that style. Okay. So we're going to take that casual, uh, candid conversation of theology Roundtable and talk about missions. Um, and to use Netflix lingo, this is going to be a limited series, meaning that there's just a set number of episodes. Theology Roundtable airs every week ongoing. They take breaks, but it's an ongoing podcast. This one, there's just going to be a set number of episodes, and they're going to air weekly this summer until we get to the season finale sometime in August. Uh, I hope that there will be more seasons in the future, but for now, this is what we have. So I hope that you'll enjoy this new podcast as we take that casual interview style of Theology Roundtable. Um, but specifically delve into the topic of missions through the lens of pastors and missionaries and their involvement in the mission. So this week, uh, to start, we have the host of Theology Roundtable, Pastor Jeff Bartell. Jeff, how you doing, man? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks so much for doing this. I appreciate it. Um, I hope it's a project that people will enjoy. Um, are, are you a little bit surprised at how many downloads we've gotten on Theology Roundtable? <laughs> I really am surprised. I never <laughs> thought that people all around the world, not just the country, would tune in to hear what we have to say. Right, right. And so that's been a really cool outlet for talking about theology in the Bible. And so hopefully um, this idea of missions, which is very important to both of us, sure. Um, hopefully people will enjoy just being a fly on the wall in some of these conversations right. as well. And so uh, if you guys don't know, most of you probably know a little bit about Pastor Jeff's story, but Pastor Jeff was a missionary in the country of Albania for 
15 years? 14. 14 years. Um, and so if you want to just give us, I know that there's a ton of story behind it, but just give us a summary of what led you to the field. I know you got saved in college. Right. Um, how did you end up in Albania as a missionary at, uh, I think you were 30 years old. Is that 30 right? years old. How, right. how did you get to that point? What, what, what path did God lead you down? Yeah. So I, you know, if I back up a little bit and I'll be brief, um, I was born at a very young age. No, sorry. That's a <laughs> dumb joke. Sorry. Yeah. Um, I'm going to edit that out. Okay. Not really. <laughs> um, I was born in the suburbs of Chicago to a non-church family. And I say that because I lived my entire growing up years never having a Bible and never going to church and never understanding anything about the gospel. And eventually, through circumstances of life, I ended up moving to Northeast Arkansas and enrolling in Arkansas State University at the age of 21. And when I did that, I met somebody who shared the gospel with me. And it was the first time in my life I'd ever heard the gospel presented, and I got saved, having heard the gospel only for and the very you, first you time. You didn't grow up with the Sunday school, None of VBS, it. Never childhood. saw a Bible. So, you know, now I'm a pastor and a preacher, and, you know, mm -hmm. I've got all these little preacher lingo things I can throw out and things I've said you've heard me say a lot sure. of times. But, for example, I didn't know there was an Old Testament and a New Testament. I'd only heard of Last Will and Testament. <laughs> I didn't know, you know, I thought Job was Job. I didn't, I literally did not mm -hmm. know any yeah. of these things. Um, so I say that because ultimately, um, I did get saved at age 21. I was involved in a campus ministry in a church there in Jonesboro, Arkansas, uh, ended up graduating four years later, age 25, got my first job in North Alabama. And the church that I got involved in in North Alabama was very missions minded. They spent a lot of money on missions, raised a lot of money, went on a lot of missions trips. I started going on missions trips and it just started to burn in my heart that this was an interesting thing. And, and I realized soon enough, I had a degree in mechanical engineering, was working as an engineer. And uh, I, I just realized as I was falling in love with the Lord and his word more and more that I didn't want to be an engineer who happened to be a Christian. I wanted to be a Christian who happened to be an engineer. Mm. And uh, the church had their own training uh, program, their own in-house Bible Institute. I did all of that. And I went on mission trips with them. And, and the Lord just was putting in my heart the desire to leave this country and go share the gospel with people who had never heard. Mm. And so between 25 and 30, I completed the education that the church offered for theology. And it was, you know, it was limited, but it was good. Mm -hmm. And so with that... Um, now, did you, I, I'm curious, do you feel like you had a quote unquote call, and we could get into that later, Yeah. Uh, to the the pastorate or vocational ministry before a call to missions? Or would you say, no, I, I felt called to missions. And then I, because of that, I went down the road of training uh, in ministry. Well, I, as soon as the church started offering what we might just call extended discipleship. Mm -hmm. So they just did elementary discipleship like a lot of churches would. And then they just had higher and higher levels. Mm -hmm. Before even missions was really on the radar, I was just interested in what the Bible says, Just redeeming the time. The yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was, I felt like I was so far behind the curve in my early twenties, mid twenties now. Mm -hmm. And I, there was so much of the Bible I knew nothing about. I just wanted to study more. Mm -hmm. So I was studying at whatever levels were available to me. Mm -hmm. And at that same time, you know, the church started taking mission trips and I said, yeah, let's do that. And on the very first trip that I went on, uh, with the church. There was just some cool experiences that we don't need to get into. But at the end of the day, the Lord was just kind of showing me, hey, you know, these guys that are missionaries are just average people. Mm 
Mm-hmm. They've just decided to focus their life on getting the gospel to people who have never heard, and that really interested me. Yeah. So you would have been preparing and training in ministry in late 80s, early 90s? Yeah, somewhere in late there? 80s, mid so 80s. So yeah. I'm curious, just because this, I, I feel like it's so relevant to the times, the current events that we're in today, late 80s and 90s, everybody was talking about the end of the world and right. the rapture happening today. And right. there was that famous book, like, was it 88 or 89 Reasons the right. Rapture Will Happen in 1989? I think there or... was two books because they missed 88. <laughs> <laughs> they came back in 89. Well, and then, you know, even, yeah. even like, you know, people who didn't want a date set were pretty sure it was going to happen by 2000. Like, right. Y2K... That's going to be it. 2000, take off seven years for the tribulation, typically. Sure. Yeah, You yeah, know, yeah. 93, do you have any long-term plans? Why have a savings account? All that right. stuff was kind of in the Christian culture, at least the church that I was in. And and it has returned, um, you could say for good or bad, I think it's for good, at least the sense of urgency yeah, of the, I think of so the church to, to reach the world. To bring it back, did that play into... The, the urgency that the church had and, and for sure would have, I'm assuming pastors in your life would have had, did that play into your decision to not only want to be in ministry with your life, but but take the gospel to the ends of the world? Yeah, for sure. Because at the end of the day, you don't know how much time is left. We definitely felt the urgency. And I thought to myself, my goodness, I didn't... And, and I, at the time, I was living in North Alabama, which is kind of the buckle of the Bible belt. It seemed mm-hmm. like everybody is saved at least once or twice. and Oh, uh, sure. So maybe just... Even that ministry to people who already, they already know. They've, they've heard a hundred times, yeah. And so, and we used to do door-to-door visitation back in the yeah, days. Yeah. I did all of that. Um, and it just seemed like wherever we went, everybody already knew about the gospel. Mm. But when I went on a mission trip or two, people didn't know about the gospel, and you're sharing it with them for the first time, and they're getting mm. saved. And that was just so exciting. And that was fascinating. And I thought yeah. to myself, and our church always had, the big event of our church's year was always the missions conference. They bring in missionaries. Mm-hmm. And they would talk about reaching the world and, and fulfilling the Great Commission and our generation and things like that. And, and they would always challenge us, what are you doing specifically, personally, to help fulfill the Great Commission? And that really hit me. Mm-hmm. And I thought, yeah, what am I doing? Mm-hmm. Just being a part of this church that raises a lot of money? Well, that's mm-hmm. good. And I gave, you know, and all sure, that. But, sure. but what more could I do? And because I was single, uh, I was a professional, I didn't have any debt, mm-hmm. um, I thought... Well, man, I'm as mobile as anybody, and I think this is cool. And when I saw real missionaries were just regular people, just mm-hmm. choosing to live somewhere else. I mean, if you're willing to take a cold shower, maybe, or whatever you think yeah, the hardship yeah. might be, um, I was willing to do that. That didn't seem to be a big deal for me in order mm-hmm. to have the opportunity to lead people to the Lord who'd never heard before. And I, and I started the story of myself saying that I got saved the first time I ever heard the gospel, because that Mm. ended up playing into it as well. I know that it can happen, Mm. because it happened to me. that I never heard the gospel. You didn't need seven or eight or 14 times or whatever. No, I mean, some people do okay, but I didn't. Mm -hmm. And uh, as it turns out, um, when the opportunity came for me to actually relocate and go to the country of Albania, um, that was an entire nation that had never heard the gospel for a whole Mm. generation. Yeah. So, and what you just said about you know when I realized missionaries were normal people, was there a a story or a person or or anything that made it click for you? Because I, I would imagine. So I grew up um, in church and being saved, but I, I I'm not the son of a pastor. I'm not the I'm not a missionary kid. You right. know. I, some people might be surprised that you can be a missionary if you aren't a missionary kid. You know. Right. So was there ever a time where you're like, huh, like. Or, or did you ever have to overcome that, like, well, I can't really be anyone in ministry because, you know, I came from nothing? No, not actually at all, because thankfully, the church that I was a part of, um, 
they were really good about teaching what missions really is and what the Great Commission really is and, mm-hmm. and how it's given to all of us as believers and anybody and everybody can participate. And so I was I was an anybody or an everybody. So That's awesome. I, I, yeah, it really was to the to the credit of the solid direction of mm-hmm. the leadership of the church at that time that helped everybody just kind of have the right focus. Awesome. So that wasn't a problem at all for me. But when when I did go on that first visit, uh, it happened to be in Belize, Central America. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't even remember the name of the missionary family, but he was just a good guy, just a nice guy, just out trying to win people to the Lord yeah, and make yeah, disciples yeah. and start a church. And I thought, this is really cool. Hmm. Was it interesting seeing a missionary on the field? May, well, and you know, missionaries, you know, saying from experience now, it, it, sometimes it feels like you have to have your guard up, especially when you're on deputation and you're, you know, you, you're trying to gain supporters. Maybe they would have their guard up with a church visiting them, but sure. did it? But they're in their nat- their natural element yeah. there. So was that interesting seeing a missionary just being a normal guy and trying to do ministry? Yeah, for sure that was the case for me. Now, to be fair, I, you know, I wasn't the pastor and I wasn't one of the leaders and I hadn't been saved all that long and I didn't have a ton of discernment. <laughs> like if there was other stuff going on. I didn't notice it. Sure. So sure. as far as my role is just a kid on the team. You're just observing. It was fantastic. Yeah. And it was exactly what the Lord needed to, you know, work in my heart. So that's cool. Yeah. So you're around 30 years of age and you're finally, you know, long story short, b- between you feeling God's call on your heart and the leadership in your church recognizing that call. Right. Uh, you're sent out right. at the age of 30 right. to Albania, which we'll get to in a second. But I, I think it's worth saying, you know, th- this... I think this is part of your story that can get glossed over, but I can just imagine, I know the kind of faith that I've had to work through to get ready to head to the field and having a wife wasn't part of it. You went to the field single as a single 30 year old man. How, what did, what did God have to show you or what did God have to reveal to you to trust him? Um, Or did, or did you have to just get over it and say, Hey, I might be, I might be single forever. Yeah, so... How did you work through that? Yeah, so, you know, I was a part of the single adult ministry in our church, like anybody would be, I guess, and I had friends who were around my age who were also not yet married, and, you know, we would have liked to have been married. I wasn't a panic yeah, or anything, yeah, yeah. but it would have been nice to be married, but it just didn't work out at that point in my life, and and I was pursuing what the Lord wanted for me, and so when the opportunity presented itself and, and, the, and everything came together for me to say yes to go to Albania, um, as a single man... I did. I really struggled with it. In fact, it was mm. probably one imagine. of the greatest struggles mm-hmm. up to that point in my life that I had to wrestle with the Lord on. Because in my mind, it's kind of funny, and I find this now after decades of pastoring people that it's true for everybody. At the time, it was just weird for me. <laughs> but um, I found that I thought that the Lord and I had made a deal, <laughs> <laughs> and I say it because the Lord didn't make a deal. I just had supposed right. you that threw the fleece out there and assumed I, that God had to cooperate. <laughs> I thought that between me and the Lord, He would bring me a wife first, and then we would surrender to serve Him wherever. Oh, okay, okay. So I in my you. mind, there was an order. Sure, I would get the wife, and then we would go. But the Lord did as He always yeah. does. He challenges us to just trust Him supremely first and foremost. Hmm. So he brought the opportunity for the ministry that I was dreaming and praying about mm-hmm. without having a prospect for a wife. And there was a, f- a dumb little phrase some of my friends and I used to kick around. We would talk about, oh, man, I guess we're just we're in the bachelor till rapture club. I, I've heard that before, man. I think that was a 90s thing. Yeah. <laughs> and so I was in that club, you know. 
And uh, it, it really did hit me when I thought, oh man, if I go to Albania as a single man, I, and it didn't end up this way, but I thought that that meant that I was literally surrendering to be single my entire life to serve the Lord. And I sure. didn't like that idea. Sure. But I ultimately wrestled with the Lord somewhat and and surrendered mm-hmm. to say, well, Lord, I, I don't understand it. It's not my preference. But if that's what you want from me, you know, I'm willing to do it. Yeah. And uh, so I surrendered literally when I, when I left to go to Albania in 1992. Um, I... In my heart and mind, mm-hmm. I was writing off every opportunity to ever be married. It was a little dramatic, I realized, sure. looking back well, but, now. But that was a big altar point in your life. You, yeah, you laid sure. the wife thing up on the altar and was like, all right, Lord, kill it if you got to. Yeah, you can have I'm it. I'm going to follow you. Right. I, I think that's awesome. And, you know, there's no guarantee that if we put something on the altar, God won't take it. Right. Um, but I, I think that's important. And and for me, and, and I've talked to, I've got friends who are missionaries and, and talked to people like there's there's there has to be a test of faith somewhere because if 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 God hasn't tested your faith here yeah. <laughs> and then you end up on the field and it's hard which it's going to be right then I mean what are you going to do so I, I guess I'm curious would this have been one of the first or maybe just the biggest uh test of your faith in in trusting the Lord with everything you know we all when we're growing in our walk with the Lord there's little things here and well, okay I'm going to trust God with my income or my job or whatever right 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 but man Trusting the Lord with ever having a spouse and moving across the nation, the the, the, the rest of your life, yeah, for sure, no no doubt about it. So you're right. All those other little things would have happened in my life. God would have tried and tested me. Mm-hmm. You know, was I going to be covetous and go after money? Was I going to be this or that? As any Christian would have growing up. Um, but then this was this was the biggest test to date, and that would be the issue. Mm-hmm. Um, it was something significant that I had to trust the Lord with, and then um, I might even add. Kale to the hmm. narrative that not only do I think that a person needs to be proven at some level that they can weather the storm of a test prior to being sent out from a church, but immediately upon being sent out, um, there was another huge problem that happened in my recent arrival in Albania, and, I, and whether we get to that or not doesn't really matter. The idea is Go this. Ahead. Go ahead. So frequently... I, and I've seen this over the years, young missionaries, new missionaries, typically within the first two years of arriving in the field will typically have some fairly significant tragedy happen to them. Their house is robbed. They have a significant health issue. Mm. Uh, some, some sort very, of hardship. Some very bad things will happen. And it's almost as if the Lord allows it to every, every mm. missionary that I know that has been fruitful and established work that remains has this exact same testimony, that something terrible happened to them early. Like quickly, yeah. <laughs> and they had to decide, am I going to bail or mm-hmm. am I going to stick it out? Do you mind sharing briefly about sure. what that was for you? Yeah, sure. So, you know, for me, it it had to do with going and on my way into Albania, and it all ties into how Albania was the last communist country to open. It was hard to get into, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And they had, it was the poorest of all the European countries, still is. And so... Uh, they had very little resources available on a lot of different levels. Um, but one of the things was I thought I would need a vehicle. And so through the counsel of my pastor and another missionary that he knew and whatever, we had, I ended up going to Romania to purchase a Jeep that's made in Romania <laughs> so that I could use it in Albania. And mm-hmm. man, I could take way too much time telling stories about how 
that was a, ended up being a dumb idea. But <laughs> but through all of that, I I ended up driving. Well, a friend of mine went with me, and we actually drove two jeeps, the two of us, from Romania to Albania because I was bringing one to somebody else who wanted mm. one and whatever. And that was just a comedy of errors. So between um, having to exchange money in the back room of some shady Baptist <laughs> church with guys that probably were with the mafia <laughs> to get cash to buy these vehicles because you couldn't like go into a showroom and buy a vehicle. Like no titles or anything. Nothing exchange like hands, that. We were right? just getting cars and giving cash and right. driving away. And, and then as soon as we started driving south out of Romania into Bulgaria, I mean, we literally never drove more than 100 miles and something else fell off the engine. Oh. <laughs> as we were driving. And I'm not a mechanic, but my buddy who was with me was. Oh, that's, that's and he nice. helped put stuff back together. And and at one point, you know, something was broken on the back end of one of those Jeeps. And I was looking at it on the backside. He had asked me to look at like where the spare tire bolts onto the back gate. Mm -hmm. And I stood up real quick and there's that steel support that holds the spare tire on the back gate okay. and i cut my head wide oh my open goodness. on that steel support standing up too quickly and blood's running down my face i'm in romania in 1992 scared to death to go to a hospital some lady from across the street runs out speaking romanian of course i don't understand her but i get the idea that she's trying to get me to go to a doctor or a hospital I'm more afraid of a Romanian hospital than I am the blood on my face. <laughs> and so I'm telling her no way. And we're not understanding each other, but somehow we're understanding each other. Right. She runs back into her house and comes back out with a box of baking soda, dumps it on my head, which coagulated wow. the blood. Wow. It was amazing, actually. <laughs> Learned and, something new. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and so we just had these errors one after another to finally get to Albania. When I finally got to Albania, mm -hmm. uh, there was a bunch of weird, what I now understand to be church politics going on with some other groups that were going to be associated with me, supposedly. Mm -hmm. And uh, there was a guy on the ground and his pastor had to remove him, but it was real secret and I had to hide in a hotel while he came in to remove his missionary because if he found out, it was just some weird, weird junk. And I was just this kid going there to start churches all by myself. Mm -hmm. And uh, all this political Christian politics stuff was going on and all this. I had no exposure to any of that before. I wasn't on staff of a church. I wasn't a deacon. I wasn't a part of you know, the administrative strategy mm -hmm. of the church. I was just a guy growing up in the church. And so all these terrible things were falling apart within the very first month oh, wow. of my wow. arriving there. And I was like, it, it would make you think that, did I, did I mess up? Did I miss the, <laughs> the voice of the Lord in this? But sure. But I was sure that the Lord had called me to be there. And I was like, well, mm -hmm. just stick it out. I mean, whatever. Wow. I mean, and it all worked out and praise the Lord, move forward, you know. But, but it was fairly quickly. That it was immediate. That you, had, you had to decide for yourself, God called me to do this right. here and I'm going to stick it out. And and because I have history now in 14 years in Albania and mm -hmm. about as many years back in the States now. That's crazy. Since I left Albania. <laughs> um, you know, the I've witnessed that over and over and over again, this happens to missionaries all the time. Mm -hmm. It'll happen to you. Yeah. And when it does, you, you know, just I think it'll help you to know that it's going to happen. Yeah. And yeah. so when it happens, you're like, oh, this is what happens to guys. I have to just kind of mm -hmm. suck it up. 
Uh, but a lot of guys bail. It, mm. Truly, a lot of missionaries come with some idea that it's going to just be beautiful and wonderful like it was in their home mission conference. Yeah, yeah. And it's really hard life. You're moving to a country that people didn't invite you to go to, mm-hmm. and you're there, and they don't necessarily want you to be there. Yeah. And something goes wrong, and you don't necessarily have a lot of friends, if any, mm-hmm. and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Your wife is stressed out, your kids, whatever the circumstances might be. Um, are you going to quit? And a lot of guys quit, and I'm not trying to judge them. I'm just maybe they never should have been there in the first place. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I know this that if you make it through that, mm-hmm. it significantly bolsters your resolve. Well, and it's another pile of rocks that yeah. you can look back on and be right. like, all right, God got me through that. Yep. And that helps you step forward. Well, that's good um, because I, I I have no idea what the audience is going to be for this podcast. I'm assuming it'll be mixed, but I hope if there's anyone out there listening who's interested in missions or being a missionary. Maybe they're just a young kid, they're 19 or 20 and they, you know, went on their first missions trip and they're excited and they're like, they're, they're certain God's calling me to be a missionary. Well, this is the kind of stuff I want you guys to hear from veteran missionaries who have been through there. This is the, this is the real thing. This is the unfiltered. Yeah. Don't overly romanticize the idea. And by the way, at the same time, Pastor Jeff and any other missionary would also say following God with your life to do missions work. There's no greater joy you could have. Right. But don't over-romanticize it either, because it is going to be hard. Because by the way, if you haven't been in ministry at all, vocationally or in a leadership position or in a, in a lay leader position, ministry is hard anywhere. Right. It's hard here. So if you haven't been in ministry yet and saw the hardships and the difficulty behind the curtain here, man, you could really be in for some wake-up calls going and doing it in another country where you don't know the culture and you don't speak the language yet. Right. Um, so let's, let's start to get into, okay, well, okay. One more thing as, cause we're going to talk about preparing for the mission and, uh, preparing your life to go to the mission field. If that's something okay. people are listening to or interested in, but I find it fascinating. I'm, I'm a history buff. I, I love watching documentaries. Um, I find it fascinating. You went to a country right after the fall of communism in that country. Right. Uh, the Berlin wall fell in 88 or 89. Something like that. Um, Communism fell in Hungary in 1990. So right around the, the turn of that decade, late 80s, early 90s, communism is falling in a lot of countries. Uh, communism fell in 91 or 92? It was the very end of 1991. In Albania. Uh, would you share just a little bit? Uh, people who have never met you or don't know you, they don't know about Albania. I didn't know Albania was a country right. until you came to our church. I didn't know it was a country until I went there. Let alone the continent <laughs> that it was on. Right. Yeah, so just explain a little bit of the the special brand of communism that was in Albania and uh, what it was like going to that post-communistic country. Yeah. So Albania was, by the way, it's a, it's a very small country. It's, it's nestled. Two two million people? Three million. Three million? And change. Today. Yeah. And so nestled up there just north of Greece and south of what used to be called Yugoslavia. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's, it's that Eastern Bloc. Right, it's Eastern Europe, and it's on the east coast of the Adriatic Sea. If if you're looking at a map, you go to Italy. Everybody knows where Italy is. You go to the very bottom of the boot heel of Italy and go due east across the sea, and you'll bump into Albania. Mm-hmm. So it's a tiny little country. A lot of people don't know about it. They don't know where it is. Um, I didn't know where it was in 1992 mm-hmm. when I went for the first visit. And uh, anyway, so it was, without question, the most strict form of communism that the world had ever seen. Hmm. Uh, their dictator, a man named Enver Hoxha, had um, followed the the Marxist-Leninist philosophy um, in such a fundamentalist way. Like to the letter. Yeah, he, he'd have been like 
the bin Laden of communists or mm. something. Yeah. And uh, so much so that it's enough for me to say a couple of statements that get anybody's attention who knows anything about it. Um, Albania broke diplomatic relations with the Soviet Union because they <laughs> deemed the Soviet Union far too liberal of communists. Wow. So that when they began to have guys like Khrushchev in charge and they began to at least begin to have talks with America and the West, mm -hmm. they said, you're a compromiser. Wow. You know, the fundamental Baptists and the Soviet of communism Union was, would be, yeah. yeah, they, the Soviet Union was the driving kind force of, the bastion of, of it all. Absolutely. Um, so when Albania broke diplomat, now you got to recognize the whole country of Albania is like just a tiny little town in the Soviet Union. I mean, 3 million people right, is nothing. Right. So they were supported greatly by the Russians. They came in and they, yeah, and they brought in all kind of resources and built roads and did all kind of stuff, factories, whatever. Mm hmm they break the ties with them. They needed a big brother friend. And so they switched over to Red China and Mao Zedong. Mao, yeah. And so China became their allies and their friends. And there was mm -hmm. a Chinese influence. And again, China's massive and communist and all sure. of this. Um, and and it, if the older listeners might remember, I think it was in the uh, mid-70s when uh, Richard Nixon went and visited China. That was kind of a landmark event in the history mm -hmm. of our country. Uh, well, when that happened, man, the Albanians were like, you Chinese are very liberal in your communism. Wow. You're willing to talk to that imperialist dog American. I can't believe that you would so quickly forsake the roots of our philosophy. Uh -huh. uh, and they broke diplomatic relations with China as well. Wow. Um, of <laughs> all of the Eastern European communist countries, uh, all of them had greatly restricted Christianity, if not banned it at some level. There was underground churches and whatnot going on. You've probably seen documentaries or read stories about. But in Albania, it is unique because it's the only country that I'm aware of, at least in the modern era, that was officially legislated in their constitution to be an atheist nation. Hmm. They, they didn't allow any religion to exercise any practice of any god of any kind. Wow. So the dictator... In their constitution. It was written into the constitution. Wow. And so the official religion of Albania is Albanianism was a, an expression that they hmm. used. And so the idea is this, is that where, you know, the Eastern Bloc countries, you know, Russia, Bulgaria, Romania, they had Eastern Orthodoxy as a state religion. Mm -hmm. um, and there was true Christians that hid underground or whatever. Albania had nothing. Uh, they they burned down the churches. They got rid of all the the Bibles and and even mosques and Muslims. Everybody was out, mm -hmm. and uh, they they were they were atheists and they were hardcore communists. And they had a, the situation set up like communists do, where you know you rat out your family if somebody mm -hmm. doesn't follow the party line sure. and all that sort of thing. And so when I arrived in early '92, there there were no documentable documentable, proven cases that I ever heard of, of somebody who was a genuine born-again believer who survived those 45 years of communism wow. and atheism. So um, the devil so it literally... was an unreached, not people group, an unreached country. Yeah, right. Unreal. Yeah, so the devil really was successful in, in stomping out biblical mm -hmm. Christianity in that country, and it really wow. was a blank slate and so the revolution happened. The borders officially opened, like in December of '91, early '92. You went on a short-term trip. Well, actually, I didn't go. I was asked to go by mm -hmm. my pastor and couldn't go. Like in February of '92, wow. the country was freshly open. Jeez. 
the friend of mine who ended up helping me drive the Jeeps mm-hmm. went by himself oh, wow. just to check it out and mm-hmm. brought back report about what he saw. And then as a result of his little reconnaissance trip, our church scheduled a mission trip of men to go in and do evangelism for that summer. So it was mm-hmm. early July. Six months out, seven months out from communism falling. Right. So that's when I went in just on a two-week trip with my pastor Mm -hmm. um, just to do evangelism with whomever. Yeah. And a whole bunch of people got saved who had never heard the gospel (laughs) before in their lives. Yeah. So And and the fruit was the evidence that God was going to do something there. Yeah. And I I was preparing and had prepared and had gotten to a point in my life where, again, I was 30, I was established, I was trained, Mm -hmm. I had some ministry leadership in our youth for several years pastor trusted and believed what God was doing in my heart. And when all the details came together and I felt like the Lord was calling me and I, it was while I was on that two week trip, I said to my pastor, I believe God's doing this. What do you think? And Mm -hmm. he prayerfully said, I, I think, I think so too. Wow. And so together, and this is unusual, I wouldn't necessarily want to do this for people here Mm -hmm. in our church, but it, it was a unique situation where I felt like God called me while I was on my two-week trip. I know that that can be an emotional thing. Sure, sure. But my pastor was with me, and he agreed that that's what God was doing. And and he also understood the urgency of getting somebody into this. People were getting saved. There was no church, no right. Bible, no shepherd, no no follow-up. Mm-hmm. Unlike any other trip we had taken, you win people to the Lord, you could hand them over to some local church or missionary to follow up on. There's, There's nothing. nothing. Yeah. So he understood, man, we got to get Jeff back in here. Mm-hmm. And... Thankfully, because it was a faithful, giving church, loved missions, um, they had the resources, and and he said, Jeff, if you'll leave immediately, mm-hmm. we'll we'll pay for it 100%, and eventually you come back and raise support. Right, so but, you did deputation later. Later. Um, but it really, you know, something that may have seemed like a weakness uh, on for you initially, you being single and no ties, which right. we'll talk about as we talk about preparing in a second. No ties. You could, not only could leave quickly, but you could leave cheaply. Right. To the point where in your church, obviously, had some resources, but they were able to pay that tab to get you there quick. So right. you went on a two-week mission trip in July and landed there when? The end of August. No, wow. Not even the end of the year. Like no, like a month no. or two. Right. So I came back. Later. So it was like the first two weeks of July. Mm-hmm. I came back. There was another team from our church that tag teamed in. So there was another team from our church that was mm-hmm. there the last two weeks of July. I came back in the middle of July, quit my job, mm-hmm. and began to sell all the stuff yeah. that I owned, which wasn't a ton. And you were there in four weeks. And within <laughs> six weeks. Six weeks. Yeah, I was back wow. in the country permanently. And... I just realized we didn't finish off the other story. To tie the bow on, if you don't know Jeff, he did get married. <laughs> one of the we never actually said that, yeah. um, but he one of the first people to get married or uh, not married. One of the first persons to get saved uh, was his translator, um, who was a female and is his right. wife today. So yep. he married. His I married translator my later. translator. Right. And do you want to share the cliche joke that you always share? Sure, it's fair. You might. As I, well. I do it all Why the time. Not? One more so time. Apologies to those who have heard me say this before. <laughs> But uh, when I introduce the story to people, I'll typically say that um, I went to Albania and married my fir- our first convert. So thankfully, it was a girl. <laughs> and then I say that I ended up retaining her as my translator and was paying her. She was working for me as a translator for a while. A um, bunch of people were getting saved in the early days of the ministry. And I decided to go ahead and marry her because I thought it would just be cheaper. <laughs> And then after people chuckle, and thankfully a few people will, 
<laughs> then I'll say it wasn't it actually was. cheaper. <laughs> and I'm sure Erla loves was that was well joke. worth it, but not cheaper for sure. Okay. <laughs> That's funny. That's and funny. Uh, by the way, as we start to transition into our other talking points for this episode, um, I will plug our sister podcast, Theology Roundtable, because if you want to hear more about the country of Albania um, from a, a national uh, from their perspective, uh, Jeff's brother-in-law, Arione Vogli, right? Vogli? Yep. Um, who would be his wife's uh, brother. Um, he was on an episode recently uh, within the last couple of months of Theology Roundtable. Um, and, you, and you can go search that. He talks about the English Bible, and but also a lot of his experience with being in Albania um, prior to the fall of communism when there was no English, when no English, when there was no Bible right. at all in the country. So make sure you go look that one up in your free time as well. Okay, so Jeff, uh, you talked about you know being 30 years old, going to a new country. I'm sure that there's a lot of stories and hardships with going to any country, but also, um, c- could we fairly say a third world country because of the communism at that oh, point? Listen, absolutely. Very poor. Again, no poorer place than Albania in the continent of Europe. So it was the poorest country in Europe. Without question. So my friend from Romania, who helped me get the Jeeps, mm-hmm. ended up... Uh, coming to my wedding, which was a year after arriving in August of 92. I got married in August of 93. Mm-hmm. Uh, he actually came to the wedding mm-hmm. and um, made the comment, if anybody had been to Romania in the early 90s, they might have a vivid <laughs> picture in their mind. He said, my goodness. He said, I'll never complain about Romania again. Wow. He's like, I thought we had it bad. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it really was very, very poor. And I, I do have the unique privilege of being able to say something that I think very few people can say, Mm -hmm. and that is that I made it to a country as a missionary before Coca-Cola made it. (laughs) So that's something. That, I mean, that's special. They didn't even have Coca-Cola. And and really, I've been there twice in uh, the last five or six years, um, and it's... It, it's a it's a good country now. Yeah, yeah and I mean it, it has its hardships at any as any country would, but it has come a long way in the thirty years. Yeah, the development has come fall. a long, long way now for sure. It's um, definitely not the same scenario mm-hmm. that when I when I first when I had first arrived, literally there were people still waiting in line for bread to get wow. food every morning. Hmm. Um, I waited in bread lines, mm-hmm. you know myself, sure. and, and and they would only make as much as they could make. And when they ran out of flour, they were out. And if you didn't get one, you didn't get one. Sure. You know, that kind of thing. And I I lived my first days in a, in a back room in a state run children's orphanage (laughs) and, uh, ate the food with the kids, you know, and it, Mm -hmm. it, if you've ever seen one of those feed the children videos of poor people where, you know, a bunch of kids got a, a bowl of porridge or something and, and the flies are crawling out of their nostrils yeah, or yeah. whatever. You know, that kind of a scene literally was the kind of a scene wow. that Albania looked like back mm-hmm. then. It, there was, at the orphanage. Sure, um, sure. There just was a lot that was left behind mm-hmm. by being such a closed door mm-hmm. to the whole Western, for sure, sure. world. So. And so you, you know, long story short, evangelized, planted a church, um, which and planted a, which planted another church from that model church while you were there. Um, today, after you, so you've been gone fourteen or fifteen years now. Right. Um, there's four churches uh, because they continue to multiply. Um, yeah, there's actually three churches directly in the line of the church that I planted first. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, and they, but they've also sent out their own foreign missionary to yeah. a, a hard to reach country right? Uh, as well, which yeah. is amazing. And so I think we can say the name of the country. Can we? Yeah, I, sure. I'll leave it to you. It's, no, we, they sent a guy to Turkey, but mm-hmm. 
we're not going to say his name, but sure. the point is, is that the ministry has continued to grow and reproduce. Right. And, you know, for anyone who think, wow, that, you know, that seems kind of slow. This was a post-communistic country that atheism was the state religion. Well, they didn't, so, have, so they didn't, didn't even have a Bible. They didn't even have a Bible. There so, was no Bible when I started. Right. So different context than maybe going to another country where, you know, everyone gets saved and then there's just churches explode out of nowhere. Yeah, think about um, trying to start a church with no—there's no existing— Christian songs to sing when you gather people together to worship. <laughs> right. There's no wow. gospel tracts written to pass mm-hmm. out to anybody. There's no discipleship lessons that are written. There's no children's material for anything. Mm. Anything and everything that had to take place, you had to develop it yourself. Mm. And so that's what I did. I, I prepared material that my translator, then eventually wife, translated, and we got somebody to print somehow. And at the wow. early years, they didn't look very nice, but sure. whatever. Um, we actually helped a group who ultimately took on the translation of the Bible. Mm-hmm. We had a small part, but that was still being developed. Yeah, um, yeah. Every single thing, gospel tracts, and, and we we have translated... I never thought, this is a joke to even think about it, but I, I've helped translate songs, just typical simple worship songs, mm-hmm. choruses, you know. Just have something to sing. Just have something to sing yeah. together. Um, whatever it is. So all that takes time. It really sure, does. Sure, sure. No, and I think it's great because like, it, as with any of the missionaries that you hear on this podcast, it, the, the fruit of a successful ministry in any culture is continual fruit. Even if that missionary leaves and moves on to the next field, it continues to produce fruit. I mean, it's fruit that remains. That's that's what yep. it is. Um, and so now let's, let's get into, uh, you were at Mission Focus, uh, which is a missions conference in Kansas City, Missouri, uh, last year. Um, right. This past January. This past January. And you did a breakout class uh, that was all about, it was very practical. Um, you know, a lot of times you listen to missions, missiology classes. It's very biblical, and that, that's wonderful. If you're listening to this podcast, I'm assuming you have already done that or you do that right now. So I want to talk about the practical side that that class uh, you covered that was, you know, maybe 40 or 50 people got to take part of, but I'd like more people to have that info. Practically, what can people do if they feel called to the mission field or, or, or if they even have an inkling that that's something that they would like to position themselves for in the future? What can they do uh, to make that happen or at least give them the opportunity to follow God if, if he calls them to do that? Right. So now that I'm a pastor, I constantly challenge our church to prayerfully consider giving their lives completely to missions. And we have a lot of young people, typically more than older people, that, that will get excited and say, I want to do that. Mm-hmm. And then they'll say, well, what do I need to do? And so there's several things. And and one of the things that we say is, is a call to missions is a call to preparation. So you yeah. need to prepare yourself. And so part of that is your theological education and all that Bible training. And that's important. And, and we're not going to talk about that now. But the other part is just preparing your life. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that you need to do is just start getting your life in order. And that might just be making sure that you're living a holy life and you clean up, you know, any problems that you might have and get your finances in order and your testimony and, and all of these kinds of things. as has been said in the past, any problems you have here will be magnified when you get to the field. Right. They, don't, they don't just resolve themselves. If you have family issues with your husband or wife, if you have whatever, I mean, just just start getting all those things lined out because they're, they're really important. But then what I... What I really like to zero in on with people is to develop a strategy for their life. Mm-hmm. Um, this process of truly preparing you to be sent out. I, I'm a believer in the fact that if a church is going to do it right, you're going to send out 
the people that are your finest people. Mm -hmm. In other words, these are people that have proven that they not only can do fruitful ministry here, but they could take it to the next step and do it in a foreign context, in a foreign language, in a foreign culture. So they have to be among your finest people. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not always the case in the mindset of everybody, but that's what we think and believe, and I think that's who makes fruitful, successful missionaries. So as a result, you need to start training your mind and focusing your life towards a new strategy of how you want to position yourself to be prepared to be called, if you want to use that terminology. Is God going to call me to missions? We used to, we used to use that terminology all the time, right, and some right. people like and don't like it. That's not the discussion. The point is this. I knew back in, in the late 80s, I wanted to do missions. There came a point when I decided mm-hmm. I wanted to do it. And then I just knew I need to do whatever I need to do to get ready. I need to pay off my school loans. I need to finish my theological education. I need to, you know, replace myself in the ministry that I'm currently involved in in the youth and and these these kinds of things to prove and get ready so that if and when the opportunity comes, in case it comes quickly, I can move quickly. And that's actually what happened in my life. Right, right. So I can just run down a list of some of the things that I think of when I think of um, telling typically younger adults yeah, what yeah, they can let's do. do that. And then we can just grab some of those things and talk about. Yeah. Them so one of them is, is that if you're a, if you're, if you're dreaming about a future in missions and you haven't told your leadership and your pastors about it, please do that immediately. Mm. Um, and, and we're just going to assume that everybody's working from the basis yeah. that they go to a good solid church and your pastor's on your side. You don't have adversaries mm. at the top. Sure. That would be a bad thing. But work with your pastors. Don't but just work with them. They go have sign to know. up for some, you know, uh, you know, non-church program that, you know, that sends people to the field to, to dig yeah, wells. Like, you, work with your pastor. Don't subcontract out your desire, in, right, into some parachurch ministry. Let your pastors be aware. Don't expect that they're just somehow going to, you know, secretly and magically divine that maybe God needs to place you somewhere. Right, Tell them right. that this is your desire. If any man desire the office of a bishop, he desires a good thing. Okay, but d- what if you desire the office office. Mm-hmm. That's a that's a debate maybe. But of a missionary, you want to you want to fulfill that role. Mm-hmm. You're actually should be a bishop anyway. At this point you'd be a pastor and a leader. Sure. But the point is you should tell them. And and they should be aware so that they can work with you, so that they can watch you a little closer, they can guide you and coach you mm-hmm. through the ministries that you're in. And maybe they say, "Oh, so and so's got this desire and they've been serving in this ministry. Let's go ahead and shift them into a new ministry assignment and see if they can get some new experiences. Mm-hmm. So you need your pastors to be on your team, and that's an important point because yeah. some of the other things in the strategy are going to require your leadership to be on board with you because mm-hmm. you can't necessarily unilaterally make them happen. So another thing I would recommend is as much as they will help you and allow you, serve in as many different various church ministries now as possible, because if you're going to be, especially in a pioneering ministry where you're going to go start something new, which is my preference, I think that people should consider starting new things, Mm -hmm. um, you're going to have to do it all until there's somebody else to help you do it. You know, it's guaranteed that you're just going to have a whole team of people ready-made to do it for you. And I'm not even sure that that's always the most effective way to do it anyway. And again, from my experience, it was just me, so this is what I had to do. But I think it's strategic if you can work in children's ministry, work in children's ministry. If you can work in youth ministry, work in youth ministry. You have to work in some level of adult ministry. You have to have some experience touching as many different things. Mm-hmm. If you can be a part of worship, be a part of worship. If you can be a part of whatever administratively, be a part of that. If, you, what, if, if you're qualified and can be a deacon, do that. Get an inside track on 
some of the yeah. decisions that are made behind the scenes. So in other words, get as much experience in the world of ministry as you can, because that will help you right. in the future. Whatever it is you've done before will help you as you go to do it again. And you'll see things that maybe you like and maybe you don't like, mm -hmm. and it won't be your job to decide whether that's what's done, but you'll have at least had exposure. Mm -hmm. So when you go to do it, you know, like any of us, we, we see things, we observe, and we're like, yeah, I really like that. If I ever get a chance, I'm going to do that. And on the other hand, you say, boy, I sure didn't like that. If I ever get mm -hmm. a chance, I tell you what I I'm not going to do. Gonna do. Yeah, yeah. Well, those are all helpful, mm -hmm. right? Sure. Um, if there's an opportunity and your pastors agree, maybe you can be relieved of whatever direct ministry responsibility you're in to set out to pioneer a new ministry in your mm -hmm. hometown. In other words, can you prove that you can reach and develop something from nothing mm. here? Could you go and reach out to an international community or, or just an unreached group of mm -hmm. people? Uh, we have an addiction recovery ministry, for example. That's a group of people that somebody needs to reach out to. Somebody had to decide we're going to start that. Yeah. Uh, can you pick a you know some Hispanic group or whatever the case might be? Mm -hmm. There's just some group that nobody's reaching in your church, and and can you do it? Mm -hmm. Boy, that would be great experience for you. Or even just something as simple as like you know with you know your pastor in the loop starting an intentional Bible study. Right. You know where where you're inviting you know go figure that this would actually help you with the mission. You're inviting random people that you meet at work or in life to your home to study the Bible. Right. That's almost like what you would plan on doing when you get to the mission field, is it right. not? Right, an evangelistic Bible. That's a great point. And so whether, you, you know, maybe you could do start a home group, a cell group, a life group, whatever you call it. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, evangelistically focused and, and just read through the scriptures and win people. Yeah, that's a great, that's another great way to do it. That kind of experience will help you, but it'll also prove to your pastors that God's doing something in you. Sure. That that you're a person who can be fruitful mm -hmm. in a startup situation. Um, I also encourage everybody, if they never have, man, go on a mission trip. Mm -hmm. And there's different kinds of mission trips. And so typically people who are at this point in their life have already been on a one or two or more short-term trips for a week or two. You go do a mm -hmm. camp or you go do whatever you do. Right. Um, and I'm talking about a ministry, evangelistic-type ministry trip, not mm -hmm. just a work a trip. Shed, yeah. yeah, if you're going to go work and build something, that's cool, but but that's really not the life of a career missionary. So you want to go right. on an evangelistic, share-the-word-of-God-with-people-type mm -hmm. mission trip. And uh, and so if you've been—but if you've been on a couple of those already, my advice would be don't continually and forever go on two-week trips. Mm -hmm. You've kind of got that T-shirt. Sure. You know what that looks like. See if there's a way that you can go on a, a medium or a longer term trip where you could stay for at least the whole summer mm. up to a year. And I know that you'd, you know, you'd probably have to quit your job to do it or you might have to get leave or whatever that might be. Mm -hmm. But the point is, is that if you can be there, see, because if you're only there for a week or two, there's a missionary on the field or a host that has done a ton of work to make your one-week experience wonderful. Mm. They've provided the housing and the transportation and the translators. And all translators. you did was show up and... They've gathered all <laughs> the lost people for you to talk to. <laughs> right. You speak to them in a language they don't know. They've translated it for you when people right. raise their hand and get saved, however, you know, whatever the deal is. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, they've, they've planned for you a day of rest and excursion and fun. They've <laughs> fed you every night. Sure. And when you leave, they're exhausted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, well... Go on a trip after you've done a few of those and get, you know, get a burden for the world. Go on one where you stay longer mm -hmm. and notice what day to day life in a foreign country looks like. It's just not near as sexy. Mm. 
it's hard work and, and sure. you're just wandering around a town that you can barely talk to people and you got to go grocery shopping and you got to, mm-hmm. you know, just meet people for coffee and have conversations and start to figure out what that feels like before you sell your house and move away mm. and have your miserable experience in the first year that scares you back home again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why, why bother? After you spent two or three or four years raising money from churches deputation. Right. And then have to give it back. And right, you, right. The, the people who have fallen into that category that I have known come away with it with such a negative, I mean, it's such a devastating failure mm-hmm. that they feel that a lot of them have a hard time readjusting back here. They, mm-hmm. A lot of them really never reestablish to be just faithful Christians here again mm-hmm. because they just are devastated. And burn out. That they felt like they tried something for the Lord and were a failure. Yeah. So, man, get the goods on the front end as much as possible. And then, so if you can be a longer-term trip, that can be worked into maybe what could be considered an internship under the leadership sure, of somebody sure. else. And depending on where so, you're at in life, that, that might be easier or harder for you. But yeah. um, but still, it, you know, whether it's an, an official internship or just a longer stay that could give you yeah. that idea. So those are just kind of the kinds of things that you can strategize toward You'll need the assistance of your leaders, but man, you could start to work towards develop. The point is you're developing the skill set and getting the proper perspective of what your new life is going to look like if you're ever chosen to be sent out mm-hmm. as a career missionary. Sure. Awesome. And so that kind of just leads into this idea of like, okay, that, that all sounds great. Um, you know, I, you know, I'm a 19 year old guy or girl or, or whatever, you know, 20, 22, doesn't matter. I'm a young person and I, and I want to be in missions. That's all fine. I'll tell my pastor and I'll start, but that sounds like it's going to take a while. And you know, when you're in your early twenties or your late teens, uh, a year sounds like a long time. Five years sounds like forever. It's a bigger percentage of your life than it is for my life. (laughs) Right. And it goes a lot slower than the, the, than when you're older and uh, and it goes a lot quicker. Yeah, if you say you're on a five year path to get ready to go, a like, oh, well, typical twenty one year old is like, that's taking too long. Yeah, man. <laughs> right, right. Especially me, with the I'll raptures go. coming Let's, next year, yeah. I ain't got time. Yeah, for that. if the raptures happening next year, we gotta go, <laughs> Pastor. Right. Um. So, what can those people do today? that's very practical and that can start aligning themselves. Um. Let's just call it living intentionally. Yeah. I want to be in missions someday. I don't know if God's calling me to it or not, but I want to do that. How can they intentionally live their lives to set themselves up for that? Well, listen, again, just start developing the qualities of a life that God could use as a missionary. So consider what is the kind of a life God would need to use if you ever became a missionary. Well, one thing that I would always tell anybody is you really need to love God's Word, and that almost sounds Mm -hmm. like it should apply to anybody, but the point is when you go to live somewhere else— you become the instant Bible answer man. And so, yeah. you know, there's nobody else. You're not referring to anybody else, your pastor above you anymore. So they're going to come to you with Bible questions. You better be have, have already proven and developed in your lifestyle that you love the Word of God, you love to study it, you know what you know, but what you don't know, you know how to go find it. Mm. And so, so become you know how a, to study the Bible. You become, yeah. you need to become an efficient student of the Bible and to know how to take it apart and put mm-hmm. it back together. That's critically important for anybody. Well, and if you're wanting to move across the world with this book in your hand, simply because that book told you to, you ought right. to know that book. That is <laughs> You'd think that was obvious, but it is not obvious to a lot of people. <laughs> sure. And, you know, we're not here to talk about bad missionaries. And yeah. That yeah. could be another day. But 
Um, how about just intentionally looking around the town where you live and try and make friends with foreigners? Mm-hmm. Um, Which can be taboo, depending on where you live. And, right, depending and the on the cultural... Right. And so there's a lot of stereotypes and mm-hmm. there's a lot of patriotism that goes with being angry at foreigners and shutting down the borders. And I'm not making a political statement about sure. walls or nothing. I'm just saying you have people that already live in your area. Mm-hmm. And are you going to be, you know, a flag waver who says they better learn English and deport them or whatever, whatever your political bent might be? Or are you just going to view it biblically and say, there's an opportunity to win people to the Lord? Yeah. These are people with a never dying soul. And, and God brought them to me. I don't even have to move. Yeah. They're already here. Um, what might I have to do to adjust my life in my hometown to actually make friends and break into this group? You mm-hmm. could do that all on your own. You don't need your pastor's permission to go make friends with lost people to try and win them to the Lord. Yeah, and that, I doubt he'd be against it. <laughs> right. Um, we're big on personal discipleship of others, young Christians. People get saved, and, and you take them through a systematic path of growing in the fundamentals of the faith. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, hopefully you've proven that you can disciple others successfully. If you haven't, you should. And if you have, just keep doing that. In other words, personal discipleship of new believers should be a fabric of who you are. So I just, I just have the bullet point in my life always disciple. Mm. Always be involved in investing your life into the life of other people. If you're not doing that now, what in the world are you going to do when you get to a foreign country? Because go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. You better have the Bible and you better be able to make disciples. That's the mission, regardless of where you reside. Right. That is what it is. Mm -hmm. You want me to go on with a couple other things? Yeah, keep going, keep going. Okay, well, um, you kind of alluded to it earlier, um, I went to simplify my life, and I lived as a single adult, you know, in my late 20s and whatnot. Um, for example, I had enough income as an engineer to buy a house, but I intentionally never did mm. because I wanted to be able to rent so that if the Lord ever called me, yeah. I could just, you know, cut the rental contract and leave and sure. not have to sell the house. The details of how that worked out actually. I ended up buying a house and then I sold it very quickly. <laughs> Which, Anyways. and that's the thing, it doesn't, there isn't a right or wrong answer. It doesn't right. mean if you own a house that you can't be a missionary. But if you're 20 years old or 22 and you just graduated college and you got to that, okay, it's time to buy a house by American standards. If you're thinking about being a missionary, maybe don't. Maybe don't buy a house. For, for a little there bit. There are advantages to renting. Well, they, the whole point I'm trying to get at is simplify your life. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's, you know, kind of a cool thing for a lot of people these days to talk about minimalism. And whatever that means to you, the point would be: I hate that. Is don't overly (laughs) clutter your life with things, because generally most Americans will move to a country poorer than America. Yeah. Rarely will you move to a place as developed and and luxurious as where you currently live. Mm -hmm. So begin to get used to a simpler life. Mm. And any way that, that you can kind of pare down to whatever you deem the bare necessities of life and walking with the Lord and doing ministry, well, that would also include beginning to consider eliminating what might be in your life excessive recreational activities and hobbies. A lot of guys are so deeply ingrained in all their sports and activities and hobbies and 
who whatever they do, yeah, they don't have a ton of time to study the Bible excessively disciple and to do some of the and disciple and a lot of people. Yeah. All that stuff takes time. And I knew in my life that I used to enjoy playing a lot of different sports. And I was in organized when I was in North Alabama before I went to Albania. I was in an organized golf league, a tennis league, and a softball league. Mm-hmm. And I like to, you know, do some jogging and running and whatnot. And some, you know, I used to do some bowling. I mean, all sure. these little different things I like to do. Yeah. Uh, but then I got put in charge of the middle school youth. And I was in the Bible Institute of our church. And we had outreach activities and all these things going on. I just didn't have time for all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And I, one by one, eliminated the sports because the ministry was too important. Mm-hmm. Well, all of that prepared me to move to a country that really didn't have any of those sports activities yeah. available, at least not in the 90s. <laughs> right. And uh, it was just, I was overwhelmed with yeah. the need to get the Word of God out and disciple people. Sure. So start preparing your life that way. Just make it make well, it and, easier. And you should, especially as an American, we need to be honest with ourselves. If you want to be a missionary, be honest with yourself and ask, Are, am I a, uh, a high-maintenance Westerner? Do, do I require an amount of luxuries and leisures to operate? Because if you're going to go, because I, in my opinion, if you don't deal with that here, you're going to deal with one of two extremes on the field. You're either not going to make it and you're going to, you're going to bail quickly because right. I, I just can't operate without, you know, Starbucks and this and that. And I know Starbucks is in a lot of places, but, and I'm not even condemning luxuries, but a, a large capacity washer and dryer. Right, right. What do you require to operate? Because peanut you might butter. bail if you don't have that <laughs> right. peanut butter and duct tape in Albania, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> but but if you don't bail, what you might do is set up your own little America in that country because you have access to money and Amazon and shipping things and whatever, and then never actually be able to live on the level of the people you're trying to reach, and you don't ever actually become them. It, Boy, that's a really good point. That you ought to do a podcast on that. That would be, yeah, we need to talk about that with somebody. That would be a good one. So <laughs> cultural adaptation is critically important. Yeah. And, and as a foreigner, to adapt by intentionally living at the level that the people you're reaching are living. Yeah. Um, within reason, of course. Anyways, sure, that's sure. A, that's a big And deal. it's not even that you're depriving yourself of, like, necessary things, but do you have to live in a gated community and live like you live in your own little America in this country and then just go be the missionary. But Listen, I'll tell you what it will do for you because I did it. Uh, it'll endear you to the hearts of the people that mm. you live like they live. Yeah. So, you know, in a communist country, they have a lot of these block housing apartment deals that you just get your little apartment to rent and live in. And that's what we lived in like mm-hmm. everybody else. And the power grid went down frequently. And when the power went out, it went out in my house too. And when the power went out, that meant mm. you didn't have any water and, yeah. When I didn't have any water, my neighbors didn't have any water. And I wasn't any better. I didn't have generators and pumps and reservoirs that other people didn't have. Yeah. Um, and they just knew Jeff suffers like we do. Yeah. He's one of us. He's one of us. And it makes a He's difference. He's an Albanian. Yeah, it really, yeah. it really makes a difference. Now, saying that, um, that might be something else that you can do to position your life now. And that is just kind of learn how to get stuff done on your own. Yeah, that's so, fair. So, you know, I'm not <laughs> a handyman per se. Um, it's kind of funny because I got a mechanical engineering degree, but that doesn't mean <laughs> I can do much more than maybe change the oil on a car. I can't, I typically throw things away and buy them again <laughs> right, uh, or right. call people who can fix stuff. Mm-hmm. But I can figure out how to do simple maintenance. You know, if you got to fix a toilet or you got to mm-hmm. replace an outlet or you have to do some sure. simple stuff. I mean, 
in this country, it's so easy just to subcontract that stuff out to people. Right. Maybe learn how to do some stuff if you don't know how to do some stuff. Mm-hmm. That I mean, that's just a good well, thing. Well, I mean, it's even as simple as like, okay, you get you get there, you start your Bible study, you have a church that's growing. Like, okay, we're gonna get a building. Now, what do I do? Well, I'm gonna set up a little sound system or something, or like, yeah, you have any idea ever, how to do ever, that? You or, ever painted a room? Ever paint? Yeah. You ever laid any <laughs> tile? Have you ever? Right. I mean, again, somebody else might be able to do it. Sure. Maybe you have to do it until you get people to do it. Yeah. Um, whatever. Let's, uh, here's a good point. Let's, let's end on this one. Cause I, I think a lot of these things have been sure. really good. And, and a lot of the other things that you said really had to do with just studying the word. And if you aren't a student of the Bible now, do that. You yep. need to be a student of the Bible now Absolutely. before you go to the field. Um, but I think learn to laugh at yourself is key because that's, man, that's a hard one for me. I, I like to be a perfectionist and I don't like to unveil something or do something unless it's, it's perfect and I've got it down. But man, if you're going to be in the mission world, you got to you got to be willing to stumble and you got to let that pride go to the wayside. Okay, so if you can't, you need to learn to laugh at yourself because you can guarantee other people will be laughing at you. <laughs> right, right. Whether they're in, in your front of your face or behind your back. Yeah. And, and a lot of that And has don't to, be so easily offended. Yes, you have to just have a sense of humor. You're never going to make it. Yeah. And so you got to learn to roll with stuff. And, and for me and for a lot of people, it is connected at least initially, to your language learning. Sure. So learning a foreign language, if you've never learned a foreign language well, is hard work. It, it's very hard. Mm-hmm. And you should learn, wh- whenever you land in a foreign country, you should learn that language and you should learn it well. You should speak mm-hmm. as a professional yeah. eventually. Well, that takes well, a lot of time You're going to sound like a work. toddler at first. You're going to sound like a little kid <laughs> and you're going to, and people mess with you and, and they'll tell you, like you'll ask, how do I say this word? And they'll give you a cuss word. Yeah. And you won't know. And you'll go around saying a cuss word and they'll all giggle at you. And, mm-hmm. you know, they just they just spoofed you. And and you can get mad or you can laugh about it. Sure. Or you can mispronounce everything. And, and you know, uh, a close cognate to the word you're trying to say is a cuss word. So you're trying <laughs> a really to say... really offensive word or yeah, something. Yeah, you're trying yeah. to say the word for banana or whatever, and it comes out to some, you know, some cuss word. Who knows? Did that ever happen while you were preaching? Well, it, it wasn't as bad as a cuss word, but yeah. So an example in Albanian, there's some very similar pronunciations. The, the word for a little boy is almost identical, almost indiscernible to an English American <laughs> ear to the word for the devil. Oh, gosh. <laughs> so it's just the pronunciation. It's the really, pronunciation that... if you don't get it exactly right. Well, people, so you're preaching and you think you're talking about one or the other and it comes out the <laughs> other and everybody starts laughing. Right. And, and you're, you're just like, like what? Oh, crap, that wasn't, what just happened? <laughs> I wasn't making a joke. What are you laughing? Right. You know, and they're laughing at you because you blew it. And they, but they're not really, they don't really right. care. They just thought it was funny. But what does that do? Your, your willingness to laugh at yourself and to accept that kind of a thing. What, how far does that go in their view? The oh, people that you're trying to reach. It's huge. You're relatable. Mm. And listen, let me tell you what, while you're blowing it in the language, <laughs> they, they know you're trying. Or cultural concepts that you don't really know, right. which hand do I shake with, or, you know, right. what, you know. Do I kiss them on the cheek? What's offensive, not what's yeah. not offensive, sure. So they know that you're trying. They mm. know you don't know, mm. but they know you're trying. And, and I always say this, you know, love covers a multitude of sins. Mm. You could blow a lot of things and you can, listen, I ended up learning to speak Albanian fairly well. A lot of people would say very well. But there's no question. Like, if you went back and listened to that theology roundtable with my brother-in-law. Yeah, he did say, oh, he has an accent. Oh, I speak Albanian with good grammatical structure Mm -hmm. with a serious American accent. (laughs) Sure. So you may have friends who are foreigners in America that have good 
grammatical English, mm-hmm. but they absolutely have an accent. Sure. Does sure. it really bother you? No, it doesn't really bother mm-hmm. you. They have an accent. They speak English very and well. And you understand them. Yeah. yeah. But it's not just language. That's just an easy one. But it could be anything. You're just mm-hmm. going to make mistakes. You're going to do dumb things and just just learn to laugh it off. So get over yourself now. Get over <laughs> yourself and start figuring it out and yeah. relax. That's you're, awesome. No matter who you are, you're just not that big a deal. Mm-hmm. Your Lord is a big deal. Yeah. Amen. And he can use you. Sure. And that's all that really matters. That's good. Awesome. Well, thanks, Jeff. I uh, As we wrap this one up, I hope you guys enjoyed this, and I hope that you'll stick around and listen to the rest of these this summer and enjoy the the perspective on missions and different facets that we'll cover um, from different missionaries and pastors uh, from around the world. But Jeff, uh, just as we leave here, you don't have a ministry or website to promote necessarily because you're not on the field right now, um, but do you have any, uh, just a short charge uh, for anybody who's listening to this? And uh, I think we, this whole episode was a charge, um, but if they're, they're in interested in missions, or even just interested in ministry, vocational ministry someday, uh, what what could you leave them with? Yeah, I would encourage anybody who loves the Lord with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength to consider serving the Lord in vocational ministry and specifically in cross-cultural ministry. Mm. Listen, the Lord has given us a command, and that is the Great Commission, to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And almost everybody you know isn't going to do that. They're going to mm-hmm. stay here. Yeah. So why don't you do it? And, and if it's near the end of time or not, that's God's business. That's not your business. What your business is, is to be obedient. Mm-hmm. And do you want to ultimately stand before the Lord at the judgment seat of Christ, knowing that you left it all out on the field? Yeah. You did everything that you possibly could do, and knowing the fact that, listen, there's nothing special about any of us. God can use you as much as he's ever used anybody if you'll just surrender and allow him to change you into who he wants you to be and to take you to the end of the world. Listen, you have to consider the possibility, and there is no great... Listen, it's it's the hardest job you'll ever love, mm-hmm. and there's no greater reward than thinking there's a group of people in another part of the planet that now love the Lord and serve Him and continue to reproduce as a result of my obedience. Mm. Man, throw your life at that. What other thing could possibly compare than throwing your life at that? And something you told me years ago, or I don't know I don't even know if you told me this individually or it was just in a church service. Um, but, you know, if you're that 19-year-old that's out there and wants to be used by God, however old you are, but you're staring down a couple of years of training and preparation and you're just not sure and you're like, what if the rapture happens before I ever get to the field? Look, if the rapture happens before you get to the field and you are obeying the Lord and preparing for what he asked you to do, what better place could you be? And can I throw out a theory? This isn't a doctrine. I can't preach it, but it's just a good idea, something to think about that'll <laughs> yeah. probably help that guy in that category. Mm-hmm. Because it helped me when I was in that when I was that guy in that category. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it works out this way or not, but I like to think that if the Lord calls time, and you didn't get the chance to do what you were preparing to do, well, first of all, He should come back and find you doing what you're supposed to be doing. Mm-hmm. But sometimes that's not enough for us. We want a little more. Right, right. What if, and this is just a what if, what if the Lord in eternity rewards you for what he knows you would have done? Mm. Should he have left you 50 more years on this earth to do it? Mm. I mean, he knows all things. Almost as if your intentions matter, right? So (laughs) if he gave you the 50 years to finish the training and go out and give your life to open up a new field and win a whole bunch of new people... Mm -hmm. 
man, all the rewards that would go with that. What what if he yeah. said, I knew you would have done that anyway. I'll just give you the rewards for it anyway. In other words, just do what you're supposed to do now. Yeah. Don't worry about the time. Absolutely. And for those of you out there, as, as we wrap this up, who are wondering, well, man, I really would love to do something for the Lord, but I don't know. Would he call me? Listen, I'll probably, we'll probably do an episode with somebody talking about a call to missions, but can I just say everything in the scripture that God talks about choosing people or electing people, he chooses people who choose him. Yeah. And if you'll simply choose to prepare and to obey God, he's already called us all to obey the great commission. If you'll choose to obey him, he'll choose you right back and he'll use you. Now, it, it, your, your experiences, your wheelhouse, your personality all plays into how God uses you and wants to use you. But man... If you have a desire or a burden, let that drive you to prepare, not, not drive you to be a rogue Christian who defies your pastor, but let that drive you to prepare and allow God to use you. Thank you guys so much for listening. We'll see you next week. God bless. Thanks for listening. Please rate and subscribe and share us on social media. Also, please make sure to check out our other podcast, Theology Roundtable at theologyroundtable.com.